Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. As eagle-brained listeners may remember, I live in the state of Oregon, which for the most part is not as weird a place as popular culture in general might lead you to believe. Yes, it is a little bit like the show Portlandia, but mostly just in the sense that conversations rarely have satisfying endings, and I don't think that's an Oregon-specific problem. For the most part, living in Portland is kind of like I imagine it would be being an accountant in, say, Narnia. You're like, yeah, we've got a talking lion who's a thinly-veiled parable for Christ. But that doesn't really affect the local economy as much as you'd imagine. The Turkish delight industry took a real nosedive once the Snow Queen was deposed, but other than that, it's just a regular place. And for the most part, Oregon is just a regular place. But every now and again, something happens which forces me to admit that in certain ways, yes, Oregon is the place that non-Oregonians think that it is. See, this past weekend, Lisa and I drove out to the coast and stayed at an Airbnb. It was really nice. We hadn't spent Thanksgiving with family, but we had still made a huge dinner just for the two of us, so we had a ton of leftovers. And we brought them all with us so that we wouldn't need to go to any local businesses or restaurants or anything and tried to be as safe as we could during the COVIDingness stuff. And we went for a bunch of long walks on the beach, and it was very nice. But the thing that reminded me that Oregon is a very distinct place was not its majestic coastline. It was the fact that the Airbnb that we stayed in, which was run by a very nice older woman, came complete with a guest bong, which had a very nice little note on it explaining that we were welcome to use it and that it was washed out with alcohol after every guest. I admit I'm a little bit disappointed in myself that we didn't make use of it. But my point is, yeah, in a lot of ways, Oregon is what you think it is. Anyway, let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Like a monocle lover likes half-priced optometrists, I hope that you will like this synopsis. Synopsis. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 31. May, 1987. Resolution. Written by Marf Wolfman and Paul Levitz. Drawed by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Augustin Moss, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Marf Wolfman and Mike Gold. Teen Titan Roll Call Cyborg, Starfire, Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, Jericho, Robin, the Jason Todd one, The Flash, the Wally West one, Magenta, who should really be called Magneta, Nightwing, Raven, and kinda sorta Zack Wingman. Non-Teen Titans superheroes appearing in this issue. Superman, Batman, Skyman, Green Lantern, the Jon Stewart one, Green Lantern, the Cat Matui one, 
and Robot Man's severed head. Previously in New Teen Titans, Brother Blood was having a pretty good day. The surprisingly spry supposed septicentenarian but secretly seventh generation single centenarian was on the cusp of not only defeating his hated nemeses, the Teen Titans, on national television, but also conquering the world while he was at it. Not bad for a guy the whole world thought was dead a few days ago. See, an indeterminate amount of comic book time ago, the chronologically confounding cult leader had faked his own death and left his strangely sanguinary sect, the Church of Blood, in the hands of his malevolent major domo, Mother Mayhem, who was not entirely coincidentally pregnant with his child. The Machiavellian mother-to-be had wasted no time pretend-mourning the perfidious pontiff. Acting on the not-so-dead no-goodnik's behalf, she began collecting former Teen Titans and their allies. Mayhem's first recruit was the amnesiac alien angel, Zack Wingman. After a few pats on the head and some ego-stroking, the forgetful flyboy was soon convinced that the Church of Blood was on the up-and-up. Next, Mayhem kidnapped Raven and her mother, Arella. Raven had recently killed the extra-dimensional bad dad who had been living in her bird-shaped soul tummy and was feeling a bit vulnerable. Mother Mayhem and her minions took advantage of that and used a combination of torture and magic to brainwash the avian-themed empath. Nightwing, who had recently returned to Earth after sullenly celebrating a bad birthday by nursing a cup of space coffee as the third wheel on his girlfriend's surprise honeymoon, attempted to rescue his fellow bird-themed buddy. But he was quickly captured by the church's acolytes, who not only brainwashed the angst-ridden acrobat, but revealed that he'd been at least a little bit brainwashed by them ever since they kidnapped him the first time over a year ago. Once they had bolstered their ranks with this titanic trio, the Church of Blood began using their new recruits in advertisements for an upcoming internationally televised event which was to culminate with the resurrection of their allegedly expired leader, Brother Blood himself. When the non-kidnapped and brainwashed titans learned of their erstwhile allies' plight, they leapt into action. Donna called in reserve titans, Robin, aka Jason Todd, and The Flash, aka Wally West, as well as Beast Boy's old Doom Patrol pal Robot Man, and asked them to lend the gang a hand. Wally tried to convince his sporadically significant other, Francis Kane, aka Magenta, or possibly Magneta, to pitch in with her magnetic powers, but despite Wally buying her a fancy new superhero outfit, Fran declined. Our heroes headed off to interrupt the ceremony and rescue their pals, but despite their best efforts, Blood's coming back out party was a huge success. The self-styled murderous messiah and his acolytes used a combination of superpowers, satellite-generated holograms, and drugged incense to put on a show that not only convinced viewers that Blood truly had returned from the dead, but also that they should probably overthrow their respective governments and put him in charge of them. Now that's some good incense! The Titans burst into the church's backstage area and began making their way towards the amphitheater where Blood was holding court, but they were ambushed by the church's chief torturer, a fancy-hatted fuckwad named the Confessor. The Confessor soon realized that he was outmatched, so he pulled out Raven's mamarella, murdered her for no reason, and then ran away. Oh no! Fortunately, it turned out that Arella wasn't all the way dead, so Robin stayed behind to watch after her while the rest of the gang hurried ahead to confront Brother Blood and de-brainwash Raven so that she could use her powers to heal up her mom. But when our heroes Kool-Aid manned their way through the amphitheater's walls, things didn't go exactly according to plan. Unless you mean Brother Blood's plan. If that's what you meant, then things did go exactly according to plan, because Brother Blood and Raven just beat the absolute crap out of the Titans. Then Brother Blood ripped Robot Man's head off. Damn. 
This pissed off the Titans enough that they rallied slightly. Hooray! So Brother Blood beat them up again. Aw. But the shock of seeing his old friends being so thoroughly trounced caused Nightwing to shake off his brainwashing. Hooray! So Mother Mayhem drugged him again and rebrainwashed him. Aw. Somewhere between the Titans' first and second beatings, Francis Kane, who along with the rest of the world had been watching events unfold on television, decided to use the Teen Titans' Rolodex to assemble a superhero rescue squad to go save our titular teenager's collective bacon. Fran donned the unwanted super suit that Wally had so thoughtlessly gifted her, and alongside Batman, Superman, a pair of Green Lanterns, and a few other heavy hitters flew off to save the day! Hooray! But then the other heroes got distracted by a group of pro-Brother Blood protesters and wandered off, leaving Fran on her own. Aww. Back at the church, Brother Blood ordered Nightwing, Raven, Zack Wingman, and the Confessor to go throw the unconscious Titans in a holding cell. After depositing the prisoners, Nightwing went to leave with the rest of his brainwashed buddies, but the Confessor told him that he was out of the evil club, redrugged the adult adventure, and locked him up alongside his erstwhile team. Then Robin dropped down from the rafters with a nearly dead Arella. The Confessor blasted the Boy Wonder with some kind of evil laser bolt, but when Raven saw what happened to her mom, she snapped out of her brainwashing for a second. She beat up the Confessor and healed Arella. Hooray! Then she teleported away, leaving Blood's followers to load the unconscious Titans onto a transport plane so they could be taken back to the Church of Blood's home base in the Baltic, occasionally island nation of Zandia, where they would be executed. Aww. But, before the plane made it very far, Magneta, a.k.a. Fran, used her powers to crash the plane and free our harried heroes. Hooray! Fran stayed behind to attend to a drug-addled Nightwing, but the rest of the newly liberated crime fighters rushed back to once again confront Brother Blood, who once again beat them up. Aww. Just as the snake-skull-hatted scumbag was about to deliver the death blow to our demoralized do-gooders, a puff of ethereal smoke filled the chamber from which emerged a familiar bird-shaped silhouette. Raven had once again returned to Brother Blood's side. Gadzooks! Can anything dissuade Brother Blood's new converts from elevating their beloved demagogue to a position of power? This time around, will Raven view the Titans as friends or foes? And is this finally the conclusion of the Brother Blood saga? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, yup, a megaphone and some inclement weather. Yes. And, yes. For now, at least. So, a uh, somewhat qualified. Hooray! When Raven appears, Brother Blood is like, Hey, look who it is! Great timing! I've been thinking, since we both have ill-defined powers that relate in some way to people's emotions, we should probably start dating and rule the world together. Also, the fact that you've been totally brainwashed by me is a quality I always look for in a prospective romantic partner. Anyway, I think murdering your former friends together would be a fun couples activity for us, so let's do that. Mother Mayhem, who as you may recall from a few minutes ago is currently pregnant with Blood's child, watches this not-so-romantic overture from backstage and is like, Huh. Interesting. Raven doesn't respond one way or the other to Blood's proposal, which, of course, he interprets as tacit acceptance because he is an evil, creepy jerk. Fuck that guy. 
He grabs Raven's wrist and, using their combined nonsense powers, sends a blast of raw emotions through the Titans, which sends them all reeling. The Titans hate that. Backstage, Mother Mayhem is like, Hey, underlings, how's about you step back from those implausible machines we have which have been channeling emotional energy from across the world into my boyfriend? You know, the guy who is out there on national TV hitting on a teenage girl who is less than half his age, and according to some interpretations of our scripture, one-thirty-fifth his age? See, I'd like to fiddle with some knobs back there, which I think will, uh, help him. Yes, help. that That's definitely the word I'm looking for. The underlings are like, yeah, sure thing. Have fun. Back in front of the cameras, Cyborg has dragged himself to his feet. He shoots Brother Blood with a laser. Brother Blood doesn't much care for that, so he blasts Cyborg with another nonsense bolt of ridiculousness and knocks him back out. Raven seems to have shaken off whatever qualms she may or may not have had about her would-be suitor and helps him out by filling Wally and Starfire with murderous rage and making them beat each other up. In the streets of Washington, D.C., outside the White House, Crowds of newly converted zealots have formed a violent mob and are demanding that Brother Blood be installed as president, despite him not having been elected to that position. Skyman and Green Lantern's John Stewart and Cap Matui fly over the crowd and try to do some damage control. Skyman is like, Man, sure wish these guys would go home. Cap Matui's like, Huh, that gives me an idea. She uses her power ring to make a big green megaphone and addresses the crowd. She's like, Hey! Go home! Brother Blood is a fraud! The crowd is like, Oh, he is? Well, we don't like that. Let's all go home. And with that, they all drop their signs and wander off. Hooray? Up in New York City, outside the UN building, another throng has formed. Like the first crowd pre-megaphone, they appear bloodthirsty in more than one sense. You know, because they seem violent. But also they love Brother Blood in a way that frankly comes off as a little thirsty. They demand that Brother Blood be put in charge of the UN. Wait, they do? Huh, and here I thought they liked him. Regardless, Superman flies over the crowd and blows on them with his super lungs, sending gusts of wind which mildly discomfort the protesters. Not realizing the source of the sudden inclement weather, they're like, Ah! Wind! Let's all run away! And they immediately disperse. On a nearby rooftop, Batman is like, Nice work, Superman. But I'm not sure your super breath is the reason they all left. Superman says, Oh, really? I suppose you think it was your super brooding that did it. Okay, he doesn't say that, but he should have, because it would have been a pretty good zinger. Back in the Church of Blood's control room, a bunch of engineers are like, Hey, Mother Mayhem! It seems like our emotion-sucking machines aren't working as well as they were before you started fiddling with their settings. Mother Mayhem is like, Oh, they aren't? Well, that's weird. Can't imagine why. An engineer named Brother Carl is like, Never mind, I found the problem. Before you started tweaking things to make Brother Blood more powerful, someone must have flipped these switches that make him less powerful. Don't worry, I fixed it for you. Mother Mayhem is like, well, great work, Carl. I'll have to keep an eye on you. Carl is like, neat, sounds good. Mayhem is like, 
Yes, I'll make sure that you'll get exactly what you deserve, Carl. Carl is like, Aw, thanks, Mother Mayhem. I'm glad all my evil hard work is finally going to pay off. Yeah, nice to know that evil and naivete are not mutually exclusive. Back in the amphitheater, Starfire and Wally have knocked each other out, and Raven and Wonder Girl are fighting each other to a standstill. Beast Boy wakes up from a defeat-induced nap and is like, Ugh, Brother Blood beating the absolute shit out of us six or seven times in the last four issues has given me a real headache. Wait a minute. Head. Ache. Head. Oh shit! That's right! My good buddy Robot Man was decapitated like two issues ago, and nobody really reacted to it. That gives me an idea. And with that, Gar turns himself into a little green monkey, scurries across the floor, grabs Robot Man's severed head, and smushes it onto a plug sticking out of an unconscious cyborg's shoulder. Having a second head jammed onto his mostly molybdenum body, snaps Cyborg awake, and for some reason makes him stronger? Robot Man's severed head blinks to life as well, and with Beast Boy in monkey form holding the supplementary skull in place, the now double-domed do-gooder leaps at Brother Blood and attacks him. Hooray! Now that is some quality comic book gibberish that I can really get behind. Blood is understandably taken aback by this assault, and briefly takes a pummeling at the hands of this new patchwork protagonist. But then the repairs Carl made in the emotion distribution computer kick in, and the perplexingly puissant pernicious Pontifex mystically backhands his amalgamated adversary. The Robot Man slash Cyborg hybrid, and the Beast Boy Monkey Twine holding it together, go flying across the room. Ah, Well, it was nice while it lasted. A newly invigorated Brother Blood strolls over to Raven and is like, Now here's where we murder the Titans for real. Let the Age of Blood begin! That last part sounds like he's asking someone to hit play on a kung fu movie, but it's actually the signal for Carl and the rest of the engineers to use their nonsense computers to channel all the emotions in the world into Brother Blood and Raven. So, that's what they do only it doesn't go quite the way that Brother Blood was hoping it would. Once the nonsense computers are turned up to 11, their circuits all fry. Turns out, somebody did something to the computers, which turned off the, uh, regulators or governors or some other computery sounding word I don't understand. So now, instead of a steady flow of emotions from all over the world, Blood and Raven are drinking straight from the emotion fire hose. At first, Blood is pretty stoked about this. But then Raven is like, See, here's the thing about me being nigh-omnipotent right now and having access to all the souls in the world. It lets me see what a total fuckwad you've been this whole time. I haven't felt particularly vengeful ever since I figured out how to let trigons be bygones a while back. But darned if you don't have me feeling a bit nostalgic. And with that, the long-suffering sorceress drains every bit of magical energy from Brother Blood's body. It looks painful. Hooray! Zack Wingman, who, true to form, has been flapping around uselessly throughout the battle, swoops down and picks up the suddenly enfeebled egomaniac. He's like, You told me I was a special boy, so now I'll make sure nobody hurts you anymore. 
Carrying the creepy cult leader like a newborn baby, the flattery-susceptible flyboy smashes through the church's skylight and flaps off into the sunset. Bye, Zack Wingman and Brother Blood! The Titans are about to give chase, but Raven is like, Don't bother, guys. Brother Blood is harmless now and will never bother us again. Apparently never having read a comic book before, nor learned anything at all from their previous history, the gang agrees that that is certainly true and celebrate their victory. Hooray! Epilogue News reporter Tawny Young reports live from the scene of Brother Blood's defeat that everybody now agrees that the Church of Blood was bad and evil. Also, it's now public knowledge that Bethany Snow, the reporter who had been badmouthing the Teen Titans for the last several years, was working for the Church of Blood. Not only that, but Snow's TV station, WUBS, was secretly, and in violation of FCC law, owned by the Church. Tawny tries to interview Mother Mayhem, but the malicious matriarch isn't feeling particularly chatty. Most of the Titans feel similarly leery of the press right now, but Beast Boy stops to give a few brief sound bites that are so blatantly self-aggrandizing that they somehow manage to be kind of charming. It's an effect that he goes for a lot, but surprisingly, the animal avatar assuming adolescent actually manages to pull it off this time. Law of large numbers and all that. Or maybe I'm just more kindly disposed towards the little creep ever since he turned into a monkey and soldered his best friend's severed head onto his other best friend. But, either way, good for him. A little while later, back at the Titan Tower, the whole crew debriefs. By which I mean they go over the events of the past few days, not that they take their underpants off. I mean, for one thing, I'm pretty sure cyborgs are welded on, so wouldn't work. Raven reports that her mom is now in a hospital and feeling much better. She also apologizes for repeatedly trying to kill the rest of the team. The Titans are like, don't worry about it. We get brainwashed and try to kill each other all the time. It's an important part of being a super team. Wally says goodbye to everybody, and then picks up Fran and runs back to Central City to star in his own comic book. Bye, Wally! Robin also bids the Titans farewell. He says he's a little concerned that Batman didn't know he was part of the whole Brother Blood mission, and he'd like to get back to the Batcave before his mentor finds out about it. Well, that's the gist of what he says anyway. His actual phrasing is something that I'm pretty sure Corey and I are going to have to discuss at length. Nightwing tells Robin that if Batman gives him any static, he'll step in and take the hit for him. That's nice. Then Robin heads home as well. Bye, Robin! Now that the Titans are in his corner, I'm sure the late 80s are going to be smooth sailing for Jason Todd. Once Robin is gone, Nightwing starts to apologize for what he did while he was under the thrall of Brother Blood, but the team cuts him off, and it's like, hey, don't sweat it. What we said to Raven a few seconds ago applies to you as well. Besides, one, you were super drugged up and didn't actually do anything for the last four issues, and B, seeing as it turns out you've been at least a little brainwashed for most of the time we've known you, you're off the hook for all kinds of shit. Dick starts to half-heartedly object, but Starfire scoops him up in her arms and is like, Bye, guys! We need to go make out and stuff. Then they fly out the window together. Hooray! Or not so hooray, because they never get around to the making out part. Instead, they stop on a nearby rooftop and have a serious talk about their relationship, because it turns out 
Dick is still irked that Coriander got space married to some dude. Bummer. Back at the tower, Cyborg picks up a sack of dismembered robot man parts like he's Chewbacca carrying around a big bag of C-3PO. He announces his intention to reassemble the body of his next former tenant and heads towards the back room. Bye, Cyborg and Robot Man! Once they are alone, an exhausted Beast Boy tells Jericho that once he gets a nap, he's going to track down his maniacal magic hat-addicted stepfather, Steve Dayton, and see if he can punch some sanity into him. Good for you, Beast Boy. Maybe you could rescue Aqualad while you're at it? Remember him? Dayton took him captive like seven issues ago, and you were about to rescue him before you got distracted by something you saw on TV? Remember? You don't, do you? Well, if it's any consolation, I'm pretty sure Marv Wolfman doesn't remember either. Epilogue to the epilogue. In a secluded monastery in the bucolic countryside of Virginia, a confused and distressingly weak shepherd attends to a flock of sheep. He seems pretty out of it, and also a bit ill at ease in his button-down shirt and blue jeans. It's almost as if he'd be more comfortable wearing a snake skull for a hat and Jesus's prayer shawl as some kind of peekaboo crotch curtains. Hmm. From a hillside above him, a pair of monks watch him work. One monk remarks that for a first-time shepherd, the guy isn't doing such a bad job. The other monk is like, Well, what do you expect? An angel dropped him off and told us to take care of him. So he must be a pretty cool guy. The first monk is like, Good point. Hey, is it just me or did that angel seem kind of disappointed that we didn't tell him he was a very special boy and then pat him on the head a few times? The other monk is like, No, that wasn't just you. The end. Hooray! You guys, I think that shepherd might have been Brother Blood. Joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? It's going good. As I was mentioning to you earlier, I've still got about half of a pie left that you baked, which is great. How are you? I'm doing okay. I've been eating pie, too. You baked some tartlets. We did a uh, Thanksgiving food swap on our doorstep the other day and got a lot of leftovers to work through and I'm looking forward to it. Likewise. So that being said, I am full of tryptophan and really full and I've been trying to counteract that with coffee, which I've now added eggnog and whiskey to. So we'll see what happens with this chemical concoction I've worked up for myself today. I think you'll be fine. Thanks. What do you call the drink? That's a so a coffee, eggnog, and whiskey drink? Yeah. Hmm. I guess I just call it Friday. <laughs> Happy Friday. Likewise. You want to talk about a comic book? Yeah. Yeah, they they did, for the most part, what they said they would do. Yeah, honestly, when I saw what the title of this book was, Resolution, I breathed a big sigh of relief. 
Oh, really? I was like, mm, fool me once. <laughs> well, I did cheat, and I looked at the cover of the next issue and saw that Brother Blood wasn't on it first. Oh, clever. But no, when I saw that, I was like, oh, okay. Because this is the four-issue re-arc that's been scripted by Paul Levitz. So it started with Resurrection, then Revelation, then Revolution, and now we do finally have the conclusion in Resolution, which, yeah, is honestly a bit of a relief. And also a pretty enjoyable issue for the most part. What did you think of it? I enjoyed it also. I think my biggest takeaway, and I feel like I should know this already, is we now know what noise it makes when Raven like appears, but also what noise when she disappears. Oh, I didn't even register that. What are those noises, Corey? The appearance noise is foomph, which we see on, I guess, the first page. Mm -hmm. And then she disappears right as Cyborg's trying to laser her, and it makes mm -hmm. the noise poof. <laughs> so foomph and poof? Mm-hmm. Nice. I wonder if there will be consistency with that. There are not a ton of like signature sound effects that characters have, so I'll be curious if that is one that they stick with for Raven. I hope so, because I'm going to be on the lookout for it now. Excellent. I don't want to see anybody poofing when they should be foomfing. They better not. I think my big takeaway from this issue is really more of a question. I know it's going to be apparently elevated in upcoming weeks, but what do you think Robin's normal budget for bottom lotion is? Oh, man. Yeah, I knew this was going to come up. My nose just said, what the fuck, Batman? <laughs> Seriously, what I am referring to is a passage. It's on page 22, and Robin is saying that he needs to get back to the Batcave, but the way he phrases that is, Batman still doesn't know I was on the blood case, unless he caught me on TV, in which case, I'd better buy a case of bottom lotion. Doesn't read well. No, it really doesn't, and this is one that I can't believe read that much better in 1988. Nope. Like, that, that is well beyond the time when people, I think, would have innocently overlooked certain innuendos. And uh, also, just the idea of there being a thing called bottom lotion. I mean, I'm sure there is a thing called bottom lotion, but I'm also <laughs> sure that it's not the... Uh, I know, not the innocent necessity of mild child abuse that it's implied as being here. No, I think it's on the rack at the uh, the kink store between the, you know... Top lotion? The top <laughs> lotion and the uh, paddles. Hmm, yeah. That's what they call those uh, spanking things, right? Paddles? I, th I would assume. Looks like a paddle. Yeah, I think it's a paddle unless it's for a kink rowboat, in which case it's an oar. <laughs> okay. but then you need to get a kink or lock it's a whole thing oh man we are in the wrong business we should we should be selling that stuff not trying to open a chain of novelty bar and restaurants well here's the problem though you go to start marketing your kink or locks people are gonna think you're saying kink warlock and i'm sure that's already patented we got a lawsuit on our hands Mm. Or people will just be mad because that movie was so terrible. What movie? Just the regular Warlock movie. I thought that was a good movie. Was it? I remember that being awful. Oh, no, no. I'm thinking of Sorcerer. 
<laughs> was the one with Ray Liotta? No, 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 no. Ray Liotta played a sorcerer. That that movie was uh... that was bad, right? Yeah, that was in the name of the King Dungeon Siege. Oh man, where Ray Liotta I'm... plays the least convincing wizard in the world. <laughs> sorcerer is uh, the movie that was a remake of The Wages of Fear about a guy transporting explosives in South America that was played by Roy Scheider. Totally different genre. But no, man. Ray Liotta played such a bad wizard. I know he didn't have this line in the movie, but I really want there to be a prequel to that in which it's the uh, the building's romans of Ray Liotta's character from In the Name of the King Dungeon Siege, where he's like, ever since I was a little kid, I always wanted to be a wizard. Wait, he doesn't say that? To me, being wizard was better than being president of the United States. That's a pretty convincing Leota. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, very nice, Corey. Thanks. Okay, that's our next podcast, Dueling Leotas. <laughs> Leotas on magic. Oh, man, where it's just wizarding tips delivered by Ray Leota and his wizard clone. Mm-hmm. Or it's them, like, on magic mushrooms, <laughs> now that those are okay here. Oh, yeah, that's right. We live in a crazy wonderland where all drugs are not only legal, but mandatory. <laughs> Just like podcasts. Yup. <laughs> Those are the new rules for Portland. I have two drugs and two podcasts. <laughs> I'm above average. Um, we're getting slightly off topic here. Yeah, what we're... we're... <laughs> Back to bottom lotion. Right, right. That was actually one of a few phrases in this book that caught my eye. I gotta say, there was some really nice turns of phrase in here. Some of them didn't really make all that much sense, but I liked them nonetheless. There is a possible new band name that I got from here. Ooh, I know what it is. Yeah? What is it? It's the Polychromatic Rainbow of Descent. Yes, and their first album... The acid glow of the corrupt. Acid glow of the corrupt. <laughs> that is some funny shit, dude. I wrote down the same thing. Yeah, I love the idea of a polychromatic rainbow of descent. And it's not descent like getting mm -hmm. deeper, it's descent like objecting. And mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, okay. I don't really know what that means, but I, I like it. Very dramatic. Yeah. The other one is a weird turn of phrase that brother blood uses when cyborg is attacking him he calls him a half youth mm -hmm. and i think he's referring to the fact that he's a cyborg but it made me wonder if that is just what brother blood calls teenagers that was that was what i was thinking actually because <laughs> at first i thought he was addressing um who else is in that panel well i mean robot man uh... Because, like, Robot Man is, at that point, grafted onto Cyborg's body. So it's possible that that is what he's talking about. That now, I guess, Cyborg is half youth, half crusty old race car driver? Yeah, that scene with Cyborg and Robot Man's head grafted onto him reminded me of a movie that I haven't seen, but I've seen, like, the posters for and thought, ooh, that doesn't look good, which is the thing with two heads. I think maybe that is supposed to be good. I haven't seen that either. 
Is that the 70s one that's a black exploitation movie? Mm-hmm. I think that's supposed to actually be pretty good. Oh, really? Well, one way to find out. I guess so. And that's to look it up on the internet. Oh, no. That's a... That's, that, I feel like that's a mistake because... I don't know. I feel like it kind of pre-informs my, my thinking about stuff. I prefer to like not read the reviews and watch the thing first and, and then kind of get the information from other people on it. I think that probably is a better route in general. But I gotta say, Beast Boy's completely inexplicable decision to solder one of his friend's severed head onto his other friend's body, I loved it, and it made no sense, and... It was one of my favorite things that happened in this book. How did you feel about it? Yeah, I really liked it too. And on one hand, I thought maybe he had seen the thing with two heads, and that (laughs) was what gave him the idea. And then I also had the thought of, I love the way that technology works in this world, where if it's got cables, (laughs) you're good. Like all cyborg stuff is basically like that. It's like, I'm going to stick my finger into this computer. There is a little bit more sense in Cyborg doing it, though, where Cyborg does at least have like a background in cybernetics and has been acting in some regards as his own like doctor in some ways and fiddling on himself. But Beast Boy being like, there's a wire sticking out of your neck. I'll just twist this robot man's head onto it. And now not only are you both connected, but you're more powerful for some reason. And I just have to turn into a monkey and hold your heads together. Yeah, I mean, it was quick thinking, and I'm glad it worked. I was too. One of my other favorite things that happened in this issue was Hazriel's general ineffectual performance of him throughout the course of the battle, just kind of flapping around and looking concerned, followed by, at the very end, him offering a seemingly Amelia Bedelia level of help to Brother Blood, where he carries him off and then sticks him in a monastery and has some monks look after him and let him tend sheep. The look of just disturbed semi-panic on Brother Blood's face when he's surrounded by the sheep, juxtaposed with the image in the following panel of Azrael flapping off happily and clearly being proud of himself and what a good thing he just did, really, really cracked me up. That's par for the course with him, though, right? Like, I'm a good, good angel, you know? That attitude in general, I think, is pretty par for the course, but I don't know. I think this is the first time that Brother Blood, at least, has been fucked over by it. And I loved to see it. Yeah, I did too. The haunted look on his face, you know, he's realizing how scared of sheep he is. (laughs) I think that might be part of it. It's like, God, there's so many of them. I don't know if this, uh, okay, is it a crook or a shillelagh that he's got? That's a crook. Okay. A shillelagh is just like a whacking stick, right? I, I, I believed it, yeah, to be more of a club. Okay. Than like a long stick with a hook on the end. Yeah. The crook is more for like grabbing sheep and hooking them or perhaps ushering people off stage at the Apollo. Yeah, or just like bad mimes or just mimes. <laughs> Wait, mimes employ crooks? No, you use one to hold the mime off of the stage. 
Corey, I think you're conflating crooks and mimes because they both like to wear striped black and white shirts. Oh. We finally do check back in on the superhero rescue team that Fran put together at the end of a couple issues ago that then got distracted and wandered off last issue. I actually really loved what they were getting up to as well. Mm-hmm. Bunch of hot air. Or cold air. Yeah, well, that's Superman. He, he's creating unpleasant weather for the people that are marching in an attempted coup. But I preferred Cap Matui's approach, which is everyone else is just like wrangling tanks and just like trying to physically restrain people. And she just flies around with a giant bullhorn and is just like, hey, brother blood's a fraud. And the fact that the people that had been swayed to him and believed that he was a god react to that by being like, wait, he is? Oh, shit. I know, I know. And now it's windy outside? I'm going home. Yeah, I had a note to myself. I was like, man, we really need to have more bullhorns like that, just in general. Yeah, I fear that this may not be an accurate representation of zealots, that they're that easily swayed. But hey, I, I mean, I would be willing to try some bullhorns. If we could get just a couple of Green Lanterns on the case, I would be all in favor of that. Mm -hmm. It's not all fake news. <laughs> it's worth a shot. Yeah, couldn't hurt. The other thing that I noticed about the superheroic interlude, I mean, I guess they're all superheroes, but like the grown-up superheroes? Whatever, mm -hmm. the superhero rescue unit, is how useless Batman was to the whole situation. All he kind of did was squat up on the ceiling and Superman said like, well, my weather change seemed to have done the trick. And Batman's just like, wasn't your weather change? It's like, okay. So glad you decided to come along, Batman. I can see why you decided to come with this group instead of, I don't know, helping rescue your protege who had been brainwashed. Yeah, he just wanted to squat on a roof and criticize Superman. I mean, I'm not saying that isn't what I would have chosen to do, <laughs> but it does seem as though he could have actually done something in the Brother Blood situation other than just, you know, squat on a rooftop and wait for Superman to swing by for a chat. Yeah, he's generally depicted as, as slightly more powerful and effective than that. Mm -hmm. Or at least more active. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a tough love thing. Could be. Let's let those rascals sort it out. <laughs> when I was brainwashed, I only stayed that way for a few minutes. When I was a boy, we got brainwashed all the time. We just snapped out of it, no problem. Superman's like, yeah, but Haney was writing those stories. It's a little different. Anyway, speaking of tough love, here's that bottom lotion you ordered. <laughs> There was a weird panel where we've had some coloration issues before in terms of Brother Blood inadvertently wearing bondage gear in the past. Mm -hmm. There is a statue of him in this issue that looks like it is him wearing the bondage gear. I don't know if you got that impression from it. It's, I think, on the second page. Oh, yeah. They didn't paint the statue. It's difficult to tell because I think it is just supposed to be a stone statue. So generally monochromatic, but 
The fact that there are these little dots on his legs and upper chest make it look like he shaved recently and he's got some leg stubble and chest stubble. I think that might just be like pockmarks in the stone or to illustrate that it's made out of a porous material, but it does make it look like he is once again wearing the bondage gear and that is the statue that his followers have chosen to make for him. Mm. I wouldn't put it past him. The other coloration issue is a single panel that's towards the end of the book as part of the epilogue that takes up, I would say, a good third of the book. Mm -hmm. When Wally West is about to start carrying Fran home, there's a panel where her hair is colored white, and that, coupled with the fact that she is wearing what was maybe at the time a more stylish than it seems now lime green pantsuit, really made it look like Wally West was carrying a more elderly woman home with him. Did you get that impression? Yeah, it's it pretty jarring what a difference uh, the hair color makes. Yeah, because in the other two panels, her hair is colored yellow, but it, it really did make it look like there. there's also just a line across her face that I think is supposed to be showing expression, but coupled with the white hair, it comes off as a wrinkle. And I, I really was taken aback for a moment. And it was the fact that I was taken aback for a moment by that very slight coloration issue that made me think of another thing. He is presumably going to do the Superman carry of Fran all the way back to Central City, which is ridiculous. Oh, he, he's very fast. He's very fast, but he's not as fast as he used to be. He mm. used to be, like, super, super ridiculous speed. Now he tops out at around the speed of sound, which means that I have always gotten the impression that Central City is roughly analogous to Chicago. Mm -hmm. And he's living in a suburb of that, but he's definitely in the Midwest. So he's going from essentially New York to Chicago, running at his absolute top speed, that is over an hour that he's going to be carrying Fran like that. That is fucking ridiculous that he's doing that running at top speed. Yes, his top speed is faster than my top speed, but how fucking jacked is Wally West supposed to be? I don't know how fast the speed of sound is. That would really take an hour. Yeah, uh, speed of sound is 761 miles per hour, and Chicago is 789 miles from New York. So it would be over an hour. It's a man who does his research. <laughs> yes, it is. All right. Well, bad call, Wally. That's not going to be comfortable for, for either party. I wouldn't think so. Like, even for Fran, you know, that's like an hour of being held like a large baby. Yeah, I mean, I think she's still got the better end of that deal. Although, as we see later on in the book, I mean, Nightwing's not comfortable being carried that way for more than a panel or two. Ah, uh, that was amusing. <laughs> it was. Starfire just picks him up and is just like, and we're off. But then later she switches to the Peter Pan method of flying, where for some reason by, like, holding hands with him, they both get to fly. Mm-hmm which I've never been entirely clear on. It's a thing you see sometimes. Uh, I think that was even in the Superman movie that he, he did that with Lois Lane, but I've never really been clear on how that works. She would have to be going really fast, and she'd just be like kind of dragging him <laughs> through the air like a ragdoll. 
Maybe they just have to constantly be flying in a circle if they're doing that, and it's centrifugal force that keeps him, like, mm. level with her. Mm -hmm. He's got to be so dizzy at the end of that flight. Yep, maybe that's why he keeps being so obstinate about her political marriage being an important thing to him. Well, here's the other thing that I guess I hadn't realized. He thinks she married her brother. Oh my gosh, that's a typo, isn't it? He says Ryander. Yeah, instead of Captain George Papadopoulos, or whatever his Tamaranian name was. Yeah. Captain Karos. Yeah, and Starfire doesn't correct him. So, did, was there a second marriage? I don't know how shit works on Tamaran, but he gives this kind of, like, sly smirk at her and says, and for another, you're married to Reander. So maybe he was trying to tease her there, and then her response is tearfully to be like, no, no, that was only a marriage of formality. It, it doesn't matter. And he says, oh, it matters to me. And then he looks sad. So, like, is that the Perry Mason of, I didn't know until you just confirmed it? Oh, man. Is Starfire married to her brother? No, I think they just flew around in a circle a lot, and the editor wasn't paying attention, and... <laughs> So, wait, I mean, the editor wasn't flying around in a circle. Well, he, he should have been the one to catch that and correct it, right? Replace Reander with Papadopoulos. I mean, we have seen that Reander has watched a lot of Earth television. Maybe he saw that Folgers commercial from a few years ago and just thought that was a normal Earth sibling relationship. We finally get the payoff to the uh, Mother Mayhem feeling betrayed in this. She seems to exact her revenge on Brother Blood, which is kind of nice to see. Absolutely. I mean, seeing him grossly underestimate what giving Raven access to all the souls in the world would do was, was nice. Mm -hmm. And seeing him get his comeuppance from Mother Mayhem also was nice. Yeah, it was satisfying, certainly. And you also see Mother Mayhem pull the thing where she tries some minor league sabotage at the beginning, like she cuts off the emotion feed from New York for a few minutes, which makes him weaker, I guess. And she's like, well, you better fix whatever went wrong, guys. And then they fix it, and she's like, oh, darn. Well, well uh, I, when I find out who did that, they're in big trouble. It was clever of her. It was a nice piece of subterfuge on her part. Kind of reminded me of the old expression about how, like, a drunk will steal your stuff, but, like, a cokehead will steal your stuff and then help you look for it. It's, I guess, good to know that Mother Mayhem ascribes to the cokehead school of subterfuge. <laughs> I, I haven't heard that nugget before. Huh. Well, I think it's not necessarily inaccurate. Man, so many things to learn in this big world. Mm-hmm. I also noticed that there were a few times where somebody was addressing Mother Mayhem and then they got cut off mid-sentence, and I feel like that's happened before, and I always think they're saying Mother May I, because they <laughs> get cut off at the Mother May, and I'm like, did they name her that on purpose so it would always seem like they were just asking for permission in a really creepy way? I don't know. It seems like a little bit of a stretch. Eh, maybe so. And it still gave me Mike Pence vibes, and 
the attending douche chills every time it came up, though. So getting back to that panel where Dick and Coriander are flying around, there was also a bit of the exchange that I was really amused by where Dick is saying, I don't even know how I feel. And she just lays it out. She's like, we love each other, Dick. (laughs) (laughs) End of story. (laughs) Yeah. And once again, for me at least, what really makes that is the ambiguity of whether she is just referring to him by his name or is insulting him. Because I love the idea of her just saying, we love each other, dick. (laughs) It is the gift that keeps giving. Yeah, just what a great way to end a sentence. Mm -hmm. And appropriate for his behavior. I liked also that Cyborg brought up like, what are you complaining about that you've been minorly brainwashed for a year? You have a get-out-of-jail-free card for being an asshole. Lord knows you could use one of those. Right? Which confirms our theory that we had earlier, that that's what he was doing. He was going to use this, oh, I've been brainwashed the whole time. It's exactly what he's doing. Yeah, and he hasn't been conscious that long, I don't think, before he brought that up to the gang. Like, that he's just like, oh, yeah, and by the way, uh, I'm not responsible for anything I've done for the past. Let's see, how far can I backdate this? Let's just say ever. Mm -hmm. And also, I'm pretty unstable right now. I mean, I'm working through some things. (laughs) It's going to take me a while. I just found out that my girlfriend's married to her brother. Yep. Fucking royalty. This guy's going to milk the brainwashing thing for all he can. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, overall, I did really like this issue. The art is beautiful. It's Eduardo Beretta and Romeo Tangal. Once again, the pacing is a little bit frustrating to me. I'm glad that we got to the conclusion, but this resurrection, revelation, revolution, resolution arc has, in my opinion, suffered a bit from the each issue taking two steps forward and then one step back and rehashing a lot of the same material from previous issues each time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I feel like it could have been done in probably two issues pretty neatly. At the very least, I feel like it really should have wrapped up last issue and then this whole issue could have been the epilogue because the epilogue was actually a lot of fun and I I feel like you kind of need an issue of them dealing with the aftermath of this really enormous brother blood arc Mm -hmm. like i read the letters column in this and at least one letter complained about the fact that the brother blood storyline had been going on too long and that was a letter regarding issue 25 so damn yeah yeah it has been i think probably at least close to a year-long arc of us dealing with the brother blood storyline and this issue even does do the thing where at the end of the last issue it's seemed like they had set up that Raven had turned the corner and she's ready to confront Brother Blood. And then in this issue, nope, she's back to being brainwashed for at least the beginning of this story. And then she's ready to confront Brother Blood. I feel like this issue could have started off with her brainwashing being broken, or it really could have wrapped up last issue. That being said, I do think two steps forward, one step back is an improvement over the technique Marv Wolfman seems to have been using for the last year or so of these comics, which is one step forward, 
teleport back to the beginning <laughs> and then sprint off in a different direction, forget where I am, and refuse to ask for directions. I think, too, one, one thing that, that did lend some continuity to this story and also illustrate maybe that it was a little too long is Beast Boy at the end being like, hey, man, we still got to go rescue my dad. Yeah, I noticed, too, he didn't mention rescuing Aqualad in there. Yeah, well, it's Beast Boy for you. Well, that's all of the Titans. Believe me, I would love to put this all on Beast Boy, but nobody else is leaping to rescue the aquatic ace at this point either. Yep, you know, he's still in the clutches of the, uh, what were they called? The hybrid. The hybrid, yeah. Yep. Not cool, guys. I'm kind of disappointed that the hybrid story got abandoned when it did. Seems like being called the hybrid, they could have gotten a lot more mileage out of that one. Huh? <laughs> uh, huh? I got it. Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? <laughs> we got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting with? Well, why don't we talk about the artwork? The artwork in this, I thought, was was pretty outstanding, especially the depiction of the faces. Absolutely. What was your favorite panel in this issue? Gosh, there's so many good ones. I had three noted, but I believe out of those, the, the winner is probably, it's essentially all of page 19. It's kind of one big panel and it's the one in which brother blood is transferring the collective emotional energy of all of his followers into raven Mm. and it's just a massive zappy electrical fire and kirby crackle with some crt television monitors super imposed over the top of it with these yellow backgrounds and like magenta almost is it ekg readings like the jagged lines beeping Yeah, I think it is supposed to be those kind of readings. I just took it as like a a line graph of emotions that I still don't understand how their Mm -hmm. emotion channeling computers work, but good for them. It is a gorgeous panel, and that is the one where we do get the phrase polychromatic rainbow of descent. Mm -hmm. And it's really nice. Yeah, the silhouette in the middle of Brother Blood and Raven, which is surrounded by Kirby Crackle and then exploding out from that you get the various images of the techs working backstage and brother blood's elated face it it is a beautiful page yeah there is so much going on and that also reminds me of something that we didn't really talk about before the minutia too which is brother blood's style of hand holding where at the beginning he's like raven take a hold of my hand and then he just like grabs her by the wrist and basically holds her that way throughout the rest of the issue yeah honestly i think it is a very in character move for brother blood that that would be what he would consider hand holding Mm -hmm. is him holding your wrist so he can direct your hands and that also did lead to a little bit of confusion at the beginning because i wasn't sure if raven was all the way on his side or if he was just holding her by the wrist and like firing her hand blasts like a gun you know Mm mm-hmm doing kind of almost a Swedish chef type thing where it's like he's got his hands doing her motions for her. Wait, those weren't Swedish chef's real hands? 
No, those weren't the Swedish chef's real hands. What? No, childhood. <laughs> Destroyed. <laughs> I liked that page a lot. I liked one a couple pages before that, which was on page 12, and it's the panel where Monkey Beast Boy is holding Robot Man's head together with Cyborg's head. It does look like he's kind of doing the Three Stooges or... You as a primary school kid in the hallway banging the two heads together as Cyborg Robot Man is attacking Brother Blood. It's just such a weird panel, and it's really fun to look at. Yeah, and Brother Blood also is understandably, what the fuck? (laughs) The half-youth dares? I like the idea that he has instantly pivoted to thinking of Robot Man and Cyborg as a single person. And considers them half-youth on the cyborg side. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a little confusing about who's saying what. Like, if you stare out for a minute, that panel, you get it. That robot man is saying, don't blow it. And then mm-hmm. in answer to Brother Blood saying, what the half-youth dares? You bet I do, Blood. That's, that's coming from Cyborg. But the word bubbles are kind of... Uh, Ambiguous. Yeah. So I was like, the half... Who is the half-youth? in this situation looks to me more like we got a a monkey a cyborg and a robot head you know yeah i mean it seems like they're probably a third youth half robot and then two-thirds superhero i i forgot I, i i messed up my math there i used it all up on the chicago speed of sound thing yeah that's fair i don't think brother blood did the math very well that's my point And that just might have been his downfall. Which brings us to my favorite panel, which is the aggrieved look on his face at the end when he is surrounded by sheep and without any of his powers. (laughs) He just looks so sad, and it cracks me up so much. He's like, man, there's no blood to lick off anything. (laughs) Am I ever gonna lick blood creepily off stuff? Look at these sheep. One of them pooped. Mm, you think that's what set him off on the sad spiral? I think probably. It's gonna have to get used to that. Yep, because that's one thing about sheep. They poop. Mm-hmm. And he's got a lot of them. Yep. There is also, on the page previous to that, Cyborg's doing the almost Hamlet pose, where he's holding Robot Man's head in his hand like Yorick's skull. Mm-hmm. It looks like they're about to kiss, doesn't it? Eh, I didn't really get that from it, but I did get a real sense of affection Hmm. from Cyborg for Robot Man. I don't know. It's the way that the heads are tilted back and he's making significant eye contact, and then in the next page, runs out of the room hugging him. I don't know. Seems like maybe there's something going on between them. (laughs) Okay. I, I had a backup on that same page, too, which is the one in the bottom right, which is it's zoomed in on Beast Boy's anguished face. As he's, you know, he's just so mad that everybody's forgotten about his dad. But I feel like this is one of the few times where it's really captured. Like, yes, he's got a reason to be upset, but at the same time, it's just like a really kind of nasty expression on his face. It is. It is ugly. He he is drawn ugly, and it's compounded by the fact that, yes, he is upset, 
but it's jarring at first because I think the panel is drawn to illustrate the things that he says he is upset about at the end of his dialogue in that panel. But it starts off with him saying, I'm going to get the best night's sleep I ever had, as he has this ugly, angry grimace on his face. It's like, okay, did I miss a panel where Jericho signed, you're never going to get a good night's sleep, you're too stupid. (laughs) Oh, I hope so. I hope so, too, but when you pair his expression with, I'm going to get the best night's sleep I ever had, doesn't it look like that's what he must be responding to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really does. They should have put that word bubble in the previous panel. Mm-hmm. Who did you have as the president of the drama club? Which character do you think acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic manner in this issue. Gosh, I think this might have been my my choice the last time, but I gotta go with Brother Blood again. I mean, the hand gestures are amazing and all over the place, but the one that really put it over the top is on page 17. He's on his knees, like, scraping the ground with one hand and clutching his hand like as if he's grabbing his heart with the other. <laughs> well, grimacing and saying, ah. That is a good one. I also had Brother Blood as my choice. As a backup, I had Beast Boy for the reasons we just discussed of him grimacing angrily and uglily while saying he's going to get a good night's sleep. But Brother Blood, yes, he, there's the panel that you're talking about. More dramatically for me, I think, is. Earlier on, when Mother Mayhem is watching him on TV, on page four, there is a full-screen TV image of Brother Blood, and I think the audio coming out of the TV is supposed to be picking up the crowd chanting his name, but he's making, like, Matlock wizard hands at the screen while he is saying, Brother Blood, Brother Blood, Brother Blood! (laughs) (laughs) It does look like that. And, uh, yeah, just, I I think that is a very drama club move Mm -hmm. (laughs) to just, uh, you know, Pokemon your name at people while making wizard hands. Pretty dramatic. Very dramatic. Corey, I think it's time we took this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a Bozo, either literally or metaphorically, did you feel was worthy of... Oh! Corey, before we get to that, there were protest signs in this issue. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Did you have a favorite protest sign? I didn't detect any that were different than the last issue's protest signs, so I think I'm going to go with the same one that was from last time, which was the, the strangely worded blood power. Yeah, this time, I guess that as a slogan kind of caught on, because we saw four or five different blood power signs. The only outlier sign that I don't think I had noticed from the last issue is somebody whose sign I think gets trampled as they are fleeing the coup, which reads, I heart blood, which I thought was cute. That's one for Brother Blood himself? He hearts blood. He does heart blood. He hearts licking it off stuff. Mm -hmm. 
maybe they had made the sign for him to carry and then were like, oh, I'm never going to get to see him in person. And they just threw it on the ground. Yeah. I said, it's windy and cold. I'm going home. If Brother Blood was a real god, he would never let it get windy. (laughs) Yeah, the I Heart Blood sign did remind me of a time a few years ago when I went to a baseball game and all my friends made signs. So I made one too, but my sign just said, I like baseball. I think that's a good sign to bring to a game. Well, you could just bring that to any game. I mean, any baseball game. I could bring it to a basketball game, but I don't know, man. Basketball fans are pretty tough. (laughs) You think they'd they'd kick you out? I don't know. I feel like people can like as many ball sports as they want. That's very egalitarian of you. Thank you. Back to the bow zone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, did you want to highlight? We had a couple classics. We had a chrome dome. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to go with the one that's actually come up a few times already, because I do get the sense that it is somewhat pejorative, and that was the phrase half youth. Mm. Which half is the less desirable one? I don't know. But uh, it definitely had the ring of an insult. It did. I had that one written down to make note of. The other one that I wanted to bring up, we have also touched on briefly, and it's one that Cyborg says in response to Dick, being like, I'm not responsible for any of my actions for the past little over a year. And that's Cyborg saying, so you got an excuse for being a jerk. Since when has anyone around here needed one? And I like that Cyborg is just bringing up the fact that they're all jerks. Mm-hmm. I mean, other than that, there just wasn't a lot of insults going around other than the word fraud, which seems like it's maybe got more heft in the DC universe than it does here, both with the Green Lantern saying, Brother Blood's a fraud, and then everybody being like, oh, shit, well, then I'm going home, and Raven, when she finally makes her big turn, gets imbued with all the souls in the world. And then as part of her speech where she is, I guess, shepherdifying Brother Blood, says, Let them awake from your fevered dream and know how close they came to the living hell of your tyranny and pray to a true holy instead of a fraud. And then he goes, he's probably reacting to her using her powers at that point. But it does look like maybe he just hates getting called a fraud so much. Because as soon as she says that, he goes, Ah! (laughs) I, Asriel! So, uh, yeah, I mean, a word as powerful as fraud, I at least have to give a tip of the snake skull hat to. That's tough, but fair. Thank you. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you find most noteworthy? On page nine, as the protesters are realizing they don't like wind, there is uh, one woman with a cool bandana and another lady with a cool scarf. Mm-hmm. Looks very 80s. Yes, I call the first lady popped collar Rambo, because she has like <laughs> a popped collar on her leather jacket and a fuchsia headband, and it's a good look for her. And I know the Brother Blood logo, which started, I think, just a few issues ago, where it's got the bees facing each other. Mm -hmm. I 
noticed that I think there's been a subtle change to his outfit where the bees that are his cape clasps are in a circle now. So the back edges of them are rounded in a different way. And it really just looks like two butts pressing up against each other. It's probably most pronounced on page 17. What part of the butt is like the hole with the B, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess like maybe there's just freckles on the butt. Maybe they're just, uh, those are dried out patches where they didn't have enough bottom lotion. And they could be dimples. Those could be butt dimples, yeah. But I don't know, for whatever reason, having the bees rounded into a circle made them look more butt-like to me. And uh, I, I just noticed that. It looks a lot, a lot goofier. You see on Mother Mayhem's outfit, it's the clean straight lines at the back of the bees. It still looks kind of like two butts pressed together, but not as much. Any other fashion you wanted to talk about? I did like the collar of reporter Tony Young's sweater. I thought that was pretty cool looking. Yeah, I see what you mean. Honestly, it is such a pronounced collar that part of me wonders if it is a mist-colored necklace. Because it seems like, like a chunky gold necklace would maybe go with her earrings. But it is a very distinctive collar on that outfit. Yeah, totally looks like it could be a, a necklace or something. Also, we touched on it briefly, but uh, Fran's lime green pantsuit which incidentally is a different color than the, I think, more stylish blue blazer she is wearing on the previous page with a low-cut top. So it's another coloring element going on there. Maybe Wally just went and picked up an old lady for a panel and then brought her back home. <laughs> he was just going very fast. Mm-hmm. I feel like this has been a more difficult category for the past few issues, but in this one, there's a couple of pretty clear choices, I think. What did you have for a timestamp? Yes, I had a few. I think they might have all come from Beast Boy. Mm -hmm. The first is, I believe it's page 11. He references what I think was a popular ad campaign at the time by saying that he had an Exeteran headache. Ah. You remember those ads? I do, although I am now realizing that I think I was mixing them up with the new print commercials for a second. The, I was thinking of the little yellow different. The Excedrin is, I've got a headache this big and it's got Excedrin written all over it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just they were trying to basically make it synonymous with like a really bad headache. That is a weird branding decision. I mean, I get that they're a headache relief medicine, but trying to make your product name synonymous with a very unpleasant experience could be a big gamble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one of his. Also, he made a number of references to the David Letterman show, which I appreciated, including saying that he could be booked through Paul Schaefer. So I thought that was fun. For dates, because he's Beast Boy. Mm -hmm. And... Perhaps most notably, he uh, says that it is nice for a change to hear Nightwing trying to out-humble Pat Sajak. I had not realized that humbleness was a thing that Pat Sajak was particularly known for, but okay. Yep, that was a head-scratcher for me, too. I, I, I don't know much about him at all, other than that he you know, has hosted Wheel of Fortune for a millennia. But you'd think that generally is not something that goes with humbleness. No, I saw him once in a restaurant, a Peruvian restaurant, so I guess I know two things about him. He hosted Wheel of Fortune, 
and likes Peruvian food. Hmm. And apparently was at least at one point known for humbleness. Good timestamps. Yeah. Nice to have some kind of clear ones for a change. Mm-hmm. So we've danced around this a bit, but who did you have as your Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans, and who did you have as your Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans? For Aqualad, I went with what might not be the obvious choice, but I chose Donna because, you know, in uncertain times, she did her best to lead the team, and it was under her leadership that the story arc finally came to a resolution. <laughs> and also at the end when they're leaving and they're getting mobbed by reporters, she just looks at the reporter and they're like, and um, she doesn't appear available for comment. And I was like, <laughs> dang, that is powerful to shut down the reporters with just a glance. That is some significant eye contact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is a solid choice. I actually had Beast Boy as my Aqualad. He had the bright idea, the bright, completely nonsensible, but strangely effective idea of soldering Robot Man's head onto Cyborg's neck, which kind of turned the tide of the battle. And also, his response to the reporters actually cracked me up when they ask him for a comment, and his comment is, we're great. I get that it's a Frosted Flakes reference because he turns into a tiger as he says it, but I love the idea of when asked for comment, having the comment be, yeah, we're great. And then when everybody's freaked out (laughs) is when he does his Letterman thing. But I actually thought that was pretty cute, and it is not often that Beast Boy actually cracks me up intentionally, and he did, and I liked it. And also, yeah, like I said, he turned into a monkey and soldered some people's heads together and then held them together as a monkey during an attack. Pretty good. Pretty good indeed. Yeah, I had Beast Boy in, as my runner-up, so that's that's uh, pretty unusual for both of us to have him on the, the right side of things. Mm-hmm. Conversely, who did you have as your Beast Boy, the worst Teen Titan? For my Beast Boy, the worst Teen Titan, I chose Dick for basically realizing that he could exploit the situation that he had been in as an excuse to behave badly and, you know, not be chastised for it. And also for accidentally or on purpose, perhaps, bringing up the maybe Starfire married her brother? I don't know. Yeah, I had a tie between Starfire and Dick as my choice for the worst. I couldn't quite choose between them. The whole situation just confused me and made me uncomfortable. So I was like, you guys made me feel these these feelings. You're the worst. And I think in addition to that, you do also have Dick saying that like, oh, it's this mind control. That's why I've been a jerk for maybe ever. But also doesn't seem to be behaving in a way that is at all different than the way he had behaved. So maybe giving lie to the fact that the Church of Blood had been controlling him at all. Maybe they just said they Mm -hmm. did. But yeah, I I had him as probably my worst, but maybe Starfire's the worst if she married her brother, or doesn't correct Dick in him thinking that she married her brother. It's just a big Beast Boy booyah base of badness. Mm -hmm. 
Nice alliteration. Thank you. Now I want some Booyah Bass. Do you have thoughts on uh, Booyah Bass v. Chiapino? Uh, I don't really know too much what the difference is. They're both like tomato-based seafood soups or stews, right? I think so. I don't know that I've ever had a Booyah Bass. Yeah, I think, I think it's like a buttery Chiapino. But I know I've had really good Chiapino, and my assumption would generally be that the Italian version probably has more garlic in it. So I'm going to say that one. All right. I'm going to have to do some soup research and get back to you. I'd appreciate that. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Wapoot! In the year of our Lord, 1988, as we do go by the day of the reprints, and the month of our Lord, July, what was Aqualad probably up to, Corey? Wapoot! So Aqualad was really concerned because he was trying to figure out where Beaky had gotten off to. Oh, no. Yeah, he found a a note. Like, Beaky's penmanship is really quite poor. But Aqualad found this really, like, kind of rambling note that was something to the effect of uh, Legion of Doom, Fighting Fantastics, Baltimore, ASAP, Hawk! with an exclamation point and a question mark. And Beast Boy <laughs> thought to himself, oh my god, oh no, Hank Hall has finally turned around the bend and just gone <laughs> evil with his crazy lust for violence. And, you know, he did a little research and he learned that he had joined what he thought was a, a team of supervillains called the Legion of Doom and had teamed up with this guy named Animal and that they were just going to go basically <laughs> have this big battle with some heroes he hadn't met before called the Fantastics. And... Somehow this is all going down in Baltimore, which, like, he was like, you know, the city's seen some tough times. It, it can't handle this kind of conflagration. So um, decided to go go check it out and see if he could get things to simmer down. So it was through this misunderstanding that he found himself with a pair of tickets for the Great American Bash, which actually turned out to be a professional wrestling event with two teams on the undercard called the Legion of Doom, which uh, did, in fact, feature a wrestler by the name of Hawk, but it wasn't Hank Hall fighting the Fantastics. And, you know, he just got himself a pint of overpriced cheap beer and one after the other and ended up staying for the the whole show, uh, culminating in, in Ric Flair uh, defeating Lex Luger for the title and um, came away a, a, a real fan of professional wrestling. Good for him. Corey, I have just three words to describe that Waput episode. What a rush! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, that was one thing that Aqualad was up to in July of 1988, but it wasn't the only thing he was up to, although I think it may have taken up most of his month. He was just so keyed up after watching that great American bash that he really needed to kind of decompress. And so he did that by staying at home and watching the VHS of one of his favorite movies, Xanadu. (laughs) He's a big Olivia Newton-John fan, and he's also a big Gene Kelly fan. It was Gene Kelly's last movie, and uh, a lot of the movie dragged a little bit, but he really did enjoy the musical performances and the dance numbers. And uh, yeah, he just couldn't get enough of Olivia Newton-John. So when he saw that later that month, 
Olivia Newton-John would be appearing on Australian TV in a special called Down Under with Olivia, where she helped celebrate Australia's bicentennial, he knew he would have to tune in and watch that. And he did, and he really, really enjoyed it. The movie, if it can even be called that, was mostly just a series of Olivia Newton-John performances from her most recent album in front of some beautiful Australian scenery. And it was that Australian scenery that provoked a different reaction in Aqualad. Because in July, it was winter in Australia. And seeing all of these snowscapes and this beautiful winter scenery just put him really in the holiday spirit. But it was July, so there wasn't really any Christmassy stuff around. So he decided to go for a walk. And while he was walking, he walked by a movie theater, and his sea-strengthened ears heard the strains of his very favorite Christmas carol coming from the theater. It was December 24th, on Hollis Ave, after dark, when I saw a man chillin' with his dog in the park. I approached him very slowly with my heart full of fear, looked at his dog, oh my god, an ill ill reindeer. And when he heard those words, Aqualad got so excited, he burst into the theater, Kool-Aid man style, and then quickly replastered the wall behind him using his sea-strengthened limbs and speed because he didn't want to interfere with the movie-watching experience of others. And it turned out the movie that was playing, those uh, that song, Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC, of course, is in the opening credits of Die Hard. <laughs> so... He sat down, watched Die Hard, and thought, pretty good. And that's what Aqualad was probably up to. Nice. Anyway, thanks so much for joining us, Corey. Thank you for prying yourself out of your... Oh, you didn't have turkey. You had a duck this year, right? That's right. How was that? It was pretty good. My first time uh, cooking a duck. Successful. Good job. Thank you. Do ducks have tryptophan? I do not know. Well, regardless, thank you for joining us in this post-Thanksgiving recording. I had a nice time talking with you, pulling myself out of a tryptophan-induced nap time. And uh, yeah, I gotta say, if you get the opportunity, Jameson's eggnog and coffee is not a bad mix. That's some solid advice. Thank you. Mm Mm-hmm. And thank you for joining us, listeners. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com, or you can reach us via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. As this is the future, we can also be reached on all various forms of social medias and whatnot. Just uh, type in to Ask Jeeves. Tighten up the defense, that's T-I-T-A-N, and uh, see where the meandering road of the internet takes you. Could be to our Facebook page, we're on Twitter, Tumblr, Grindr, SeaCaptainsOnly.com. We have a a GeoCity site now that uh, a fan made for us, which is delightful to me. Uh, but the point is, we're, we're in many facets of the interwebs, and uh, 
why not take yourself on a little journey and visit us at some of them? And hey, if that winding road of the internet doesn't guide you directly to us, there's another place you can look. And that's deep inside your heart. We'll be there. We've always been there. I'll be sleeping on your couch. In your heart. Your heart couch, that is. Sleeping off some eggnog and tryptophan. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts? Well, assuming that there's more than one couch, I, I think you've got the right idea. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, these people are very big hearted. I'm sure they've got more than one couch. Worst case scenario, you can uh, curl yourself up on the love seat in there. Well, fair enough. But Dib's on the big couch. Sorry. It's okay. If you would like to donate to the show monetarily, you can visit us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do and you make a donation, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material, including the monthly podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. Uh, there's also a whole bunch of videos and some bonus content uh, that I made with Corey and some other stuff. Just, uh, you know, poke around and fill up on bonus content. And it's all up there for our donors. And so if you uh, kick us down some money, then you can have access to it. But more importantly, from my perspective, at least, uh, donating is just a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work that we do and would like us to be able to continue doing it. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, there's some ways you can do that, too. Just, uh, I don't know, what's a good way for people to support us non-monetarily, Corey? They can leave us a review in places which reviews can be left. Oh, that's a good idea. What are some places reviews can be left? Do you just mean, like, bathroom walls or the back of your notebook where you just write let's see what would the last name of tighten up the defense be defense where you just write defense as your last name and draw a heart around it and circle it a bunch and then your friends ask you what that means and you get all embarrassed yep you could do that or it may have a slightly wider reach to leave a review in a place where you listen to your podcast oh yeah anywhere fine podcasts can be listened to yeah just uh Go into, say, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and type in Tighten Up the Defense. I love this podcast so much. Someday we'll be married. It's okay because this podcast isn't my brother. But even if we were and we lived on Tamarind, no, let's not go down that road. Dot, dot, dot. Five, Five stars. stars. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Anyway, tighten up the defense. <laughs> it can be enjoyed by everyone, from half-youths to old women that Wally West has briefly kidnapped. That's a wide range of audience. It really is. Yeah, so uh, have a nice time, everybody. And we'll see you at the movie. No, we won't see you at the movies. One, I'm not going to movies. Because, you know, of the pandemic. And two, it's dark in there. So, um, I guess maybe just uh, we'll talk to you on a podcast later instead. Think that works? Yeah. Okay, we'll do that. Bye, everybody. Bye. And they knew it.
Well, you'd, you'd assume which direction that's going. <laughs> You're right. I'm sorry. I... <laughs> sometimes the bird fucks you. Sometimes you fuck the bird. I don't know. That's that's fair, Corey. I'm sorry. For all I know, that duck is the one shopping for bottom lotion. <laughs> <laughs>